Welcome to Subversion, a podcast by 1517 Fund. Subversion is a podcast where we sit down with entrepreneurs, founders, thinkers, scientists, and intellectuals who are going against the grain of society and pushing against accepted opinion. In today's episode, we sit down with Samo Borja as part of our 1517 at Home series of lectures, podcasts, uh, live audience conversations. In this conversation, we look at why civilizations collapse. There are at least 12 identifiable dark ages in the recorded history of human civilization. Although we are all fascinated with the idea of the collapse of civilization, have we considered why civilizations actually collapse? Samo is the founder of Bismarck Analysis, a consulting firm that investigates the political and institutional landscape of society. He's a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation, where he studies how institutions can endure for centuries and millennia. And he's also a senior research fellow in political science at the Foresight Institute, where he advises how institutions can shape the future of technology. You can follow him at Samo Borja, that's B-U-R-J-A, on Twitter, and you can also find him at samoboya.com. Like I said, this is part of our 1517 at home series of conversations. As such, you will hear Samo interacting with the audience, interacting with audience questions uh, throughout the conversation, but especially in the second half of the conversation. If you're interested in tuning in for one of our 1517 at home conversations, I encourage you to go to 1517fund.com forward slash at dash home and requesting an invite there. Subversion is a project of 1517 Fund. 1517 Fund supports teams led by young founders with grants, pre-seed funding, mentorship, and a community of like-minded peers. If you are a hacker, maker, scientist, or builder working outside of tracked institutions, we'd love to talk to you. You can reach out to us at 1517fund.com forward slash take dash action. That's 1517fund.com forward slash take dash action. Because a real education is a liberation. Now for our 1517 at home conversation with Sam Oboya on why civilizations collapse. Thank you for that introduction, Zach. And thank you to the 1517 Fund for organizing this talk and this conversation that hopefully will develop in a very interesting direction. Um, why do civilizations collapse? Well, that's something that's on the mind of many people right now as they look at a closed down economy in a world where people don't leave their room very much and don't leave their home very much. Yet the physical infrastructure of the internet persists. The idea naturally occurs that, you know, perhaps this is a sort of systemic crisis of some kind that we will have a multiplication of problems building up on each other. I don't think this is that kind of crisis, right? So civilizational collapse does tend to have some of these features. It is a multiplication of problems, each on their own, something that could be overcome by live players and adaptive institutions, but it proved fatal to dead players and ossified institutions. Our society is certainly one that's dominated by large bureaucratic entities, large bureaucratic entities 
break down the tasks needed for delivery of physical goods or for processing information, be it a knowledge worker on the stock market or a factory worker putting on the doors of a car, these tasks are shorn of their meaning and full context and put in a systematized environment where the constraints that the worker has to solve are really narrow. Make number go up or put the car door in. It's not that different. Now, the holistic perspective on such systems does require design. Uh, this is a direction, a space where there's a lot of disagreement as to how these emergent systems pop up or whether they are designed in the first place. I think that it's without a doubt that the large bureaucratic structures that dominate our society are designed because often you can read the original intent of the people who set them up. It's not that difficult to look through the documents of say, uh, Hoover setting up the FBI, making up your mind why the FBI exists. It's not that difficult to figure out what the IRS is. It's also not that difficult to figure out why Amazon exists. It's harder for to figure out the whole assembly, right? It's not that society is a single institution. So no matter how great, how large or small some of these institutions are, they always coexist in a symbiotic relationship with others. There is no Amazon without a United States government, and there's no US government without at least some corners of the US economy. And each of these institutions depends on each other in a quite intricate mesh. Uh, different people put the foundation of society in different places. It's a non-trivial and difficult theoretical question. You might choose to ground it out in organized religion. This already presupposes a particular form of human nature a nature where there's an orientation towards the divine that expresses and drives all our actions. It's the source of normativity. It's the reason why people come together in the first place. In the religious perspective, people come together to worship God. In the non-religious perspective, people worship God to come together. This is the subtle but important distinction of a view of religion that say someone might have if they originate with a, you know, fallen angel hypothesis rather than the rising ape hypothesis of what human beings are in the first place. So all of these investigations aren't just objective questions. Uh, a Catholic theologian might actually have a significant amount of agreement with a French secular philosopher when describing the workings of a particular institution, but they might have a very different perspective as to what's the driving force behind institutions. Then you might have views that emphasize protocols of exchange, might focus on currency, might focus on law, rather than any individual institution, rather than the bones or the muscles of society, it would be the connective tissue of society that defines the space of parameters. You might view companies as secondary effects, primarily formed by the market. Or on the other hand, you might view companies as the primary object and markets as secondary things with companies creating their own market and sometimes even creating their own regulatory environment. If you extended this all the way to government, you would end up with a view where the companies themselves are shaping their own regulatory environment and government is primary a consequence of the large economic structures of society. These very different schools of thought sound familiar because we invoke them every day in everyday conversations whenever we make an ethical, moral, uh, scientific, social,
political religious statement, we are invoking one or other theory of human existence, even if we're not making it explicit, one or another theory of what human nature is, is it unbounded potentialities with a drive for exploration, a kind of Nietzschean self-actualization? Is it the sort of striving for God mentioned earlier? Is it the misfiring of evolutionary processes best adapted to our life on the African savanna plains? These thoughts float around. So the folk conception of what a civilization is, very diverse. The key focus seems to be on something like scale and complexity. Hence the popularity of uh, the book, you know, the complex, the collapse of complex societies by Tainter, or a much later book by Jared Diamond, also titled Collapse. You also have interesting books and focuses on uh, the discussion of the late Bronze Age or the fall of the Roman Empire. These seem appealing and are found to be appealing and are usually explored by people who have one or another answer in mind. They might believe that primarily it's environmental fragility or that primarily it's moral decline or that primarily it is the overloading of complexity in the system. I think that it's important to acknowledge that you can't undertake the investigation of history without picking and choosing facts. Yes, I am presupposing the relevance of history here. For obvious reasons, I don't think we can without comparing the present to other societies and civilizations really say anything much about it at all. There are too many variables to control. The best we can hope for is cross comparison with the natural record of history, the natural set of experiments that occurred already. Much as in geology, we don't build another planet to figure out plate tectonics, but rather dig for whatever rocks might be found here or there. So we must, in this macro social study, rely less on simple, objective, ideology-driven theories and more on in-depth exploration of different examples. I do think that exploration is still itself theory-driven, so if you're a good historian or a good theoretician or a good social thinker, you explicitly acknowledge the thesis that you're working on. So my thesis is, you know, as Zach mentioned at the very start, great founder theory, I propose that social technologies are not something that's cooked up by all of us, but a tiny subset of us. And most of us pick and choose from an admittedly large variety of existing worldviews, ways of being, uh, social groups, economic entities, political entities, but that these are in themselves too complex to really originate as the product of collective action. Now, it might seem to you that the best way to design complex things is collective action or sort of like intermittent uh, individualized approaches, perhaps similar to the open software approach. I'm going to point out that, you know, unowned commons tend to be rated and that visions differ massively. If we combine the vision of a car, an airplane, and a submarine, well, it might be a brilliant leap forward. Arguably, the smartphone, at least when originally conceived, was exactly this, you know, a phone, a tablet, and a camera. Today, it's almost hard to remember those things once seem very different. But for the most part, you just get a, something that's not a very good car, not a very good plane, and not a very good submarine. The jumps in complexity also are much too fast you end up seeing completely new organizations and social forms arise in a single generation. This is the equivalent of 
you know, a hurricane going through a junkyard and assembling a 747, or perhaps a Tesla, a Tesla Cybertruck. This argument, of course, is sometimes used in biology, but in biology, we have a long history of immeasurable eons of adaptation and mutation and a clear mechanism of natural selection. There is no clear mechanism of natural selection for organizations. There are far too few of them to really explain this. If we count all the companies in the world right now, it's just a few million. And these few million companies have at most a few million more ancestors. If we look at the number of governments in the world, no matter how generous we are, even if we disregard official UN statistics and count all the statelets and pseudo-state entities such as ISIS or the Republic of Transistria or, or semi-recognized states such as Kosovo, you know, you can't really go above 500. And if you look at the number of their predecessors that are recognizably a modern centralized bureaucratic state, it's just a few hundred more. The U.S. economy, half of it, is essentially everything related to the U.S. federal government which has radically outgrown the states that initially came together to form it. This means that we're in fact, we are in fact not, we are in fact not that determined in terms of social evolution. There seems to be a lot of change over just a few thousand or tens of thousands of years. There seems to be not that many Com that not that much competition between organizations that are actually in the same reference class. It's usually organizations that are trying to do completely different things that compete with each other, where one aspect of one organization results in it subsuming and integrating the other one. In fact, if there's a biological analogy, I would probably point to the cell, not to multi-cell organisms. In our cell exists the mitochondria. The mitochondria were probably originally an independent organism but now they're part of ourselves, producing an important function of processing energy. In a very similar way, when you see something like a mystical movement like um, the Franciscans, if you were looking at such a mystical movement at 300 BC, you might describe them as the cult of a new God. But if you look at them in something like 1400 AD in their context, it's a religious movement within the Catholic church. If you see something such as the formation of a new legislative body that is not called a legislative body in the modern US government, you might use, you might not use terms such as, you know, a new form, a, a new branch of government has developed because the ideological statements that surround it propose that, you know, laws are still made in Congress. As far as I can tell, Congress is a significantly vestigial organ today. Laws are mostly made by the Supreme Court or the civil service when it implements things. Occasionally, the president can also make laws through executive decisions. People would object. People would say that this, of course, doesn't quite fit our own definition of law. And yes, I'm not using America's 2020 definition of law. I'm using law in the sense that you would use it to describe the practices of medieval Iceland or the 12 tablets in ancient Rome or Spartan law or customary law in Somalia. It is just this set of behaviors and regulations. So in theory, something called legislature exists. But if you find the actual legislative organ, you always have to look anew. In theory, the Franciscans are just good Catholics. But of course, in the Middle Ages, you can believe in any heresy as long as you declare your loyalty to the Pope. Now, these kinds of political contexts means that society is not effectively self-documenting. 
So in addition to the jumps in complexity, we also have mimicry. Mimicry is perhaps again a, a phenomenon where I could lean on biology, where many, many insects try as best as they can to look like twigs, so as to you know, distract predators and have predators assume that this is just a twig rather than a tasty morsel. The evolutionary analogies don't work quite as well there. So perhaps the best one to consider is some context of competition and warfare and some context of borrowing. Because it's not merely the case that, you know, you try to hide from your political opponents, try to hide your political power or your economic advantage. It's also the case you might wish to borrow the prestige of other organizations. The Nobel Prize in Economics was created decades after the other Nobel Prizes, specifically to be a font of honor to be distributed on economists. Thereby, economists, through arranging that such a prize is given to them, have raised their status to that of a natural science or supreme humanitarianism, which is what the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize was supposed to uh, be promoting and supposed to be advancing. Of course, the only reason there is a Nobel Peace Prize is because Alfred Nobel felt relatively guilty about the main application of dynamite being war. Uh, he was slandered or perhaps rightly accused of being a contributor to human misery in newspapers at his time. Sponsoring a prominent Peace Prize certainly cleans that up. But the service the Nobel Prize makes to society is actually one of legibly demonstrating status and expertise that are inherently rather opaque. So the first topic that I proposed is these organizations are designed. Secondly, they're not always honest about themselves. Third, individuals actually have an extremely difficult time judging expertise and knowledge or uh, understanding organizations that they're not closely affiliated with. So from the societal perspective, from the functional perspective, where we step aside the question of what human beings are and more look on the area where the French philosopher and the cardinal and the evolutionary biologist might agree, the functional parts, the wheels, the cogs as they turn and fit into each other and have various effects and people disagree as to what is the goal and the purpose and what's the cause, what's cause, what is effect. If you look at those, uh, it's very clear that people are bad at judging them. You can in fact have a false understanding of what you are doing in society. It's in fact possible to be uh, ruthlessly profiting off of the misery of others without ever seeing the misery of others or contributing greatly to the prosperity of others without ever seeing the prosperity of others. You might spend your entire life studying and thinking very deeply about a topic, publishing papers, imagining some strange sort of wall where you write your paper, you throw your paper over the wall, and somewhere, somehow, some intelligent, thoughtful, and responsible person takes the output of your scientific disinterested, disinterested exploration into account, and it is somehow made into policy or somehow translated into medical practice or somehow implemented in a factory, thereby increasing production. Well, often there's no one on the other side of the wall. So this is where we come to dysfunctionality. Because society is so deeply compartmentalized, if you analyze society from a perspective of, let us look at the whole thing and let us compare parts of it to parts of it in different societies, 
Let's try to identify those analogs. Let's try to find that legislature. Let's try to find that knowledge organ. Let's try to find where might be the military capacity of it and cross compare them. You will know that some of them will work better or worse. Just in this sense of, is something followed up? So I'm not making there here a strong normative claim of these are better societies or these are worse societies, merely is there a multiplier, right? After you chug the paper over the wall, is there a bureaucratic structure or an individual driven structure, perhaps oligarchic in nature, perhaps something else, picking that paper up and acting on its consequences? And does that oligarchic structure or bureaucratic structure have any good reason to trust your papers in the first place? Is it, do they only trust you because you received the Nobel Prize? And how do you know that the Nobel Prize is awarded on merit? I don't know about you, but I've only read something like five or six papers written by Nobel Prize winners quite outside my domains of expertise, mostly in economics, one or two in physics. I can look at it and say that it's very clearly systemic thought and it's very clearly meticulously presented and it's very clearly uh, something that has interesting premises, but it would actually take me a career to study it through. So the range of pure intellectual authority of inherent recognition of the truth is limited. Yet clearly it exists. At the end of the day, I can still go online and order myself a car or go, you know, at least before the COVID crisis, go somewhere and buy a car. And this car, its door bolted on by a worker I never met, still seems to work. And when I open the door, the door doesn't fall off. I wonder whether the same can be said of stock portfolios. But to take a few steps into this. This is an exercise in radical skepticism. Before we can even agree what a collapse is and to, to, to uh, study what a civilization is, you have to ask yourself, what is the actual basis of knowledge? What's the epistemic justification for knowing anything about society at all? And then whatever survives this asset test, you kind of have to build out from there. The argument about ignorance that I apply to the difficulty of judging expertise applies itself very strongly and you know with uh with this almost um almost distressing reality when you try to look at the historical occurrence of something as trivial as a battle you realize it's mostly looking at accounts of material artifacts other people have found and reading things that people long dead have written about it can you imagine trying to pour through Obama's emails to figure out what his key agenda was in the course of an administration? In fact, can you even imagine pouring through your own emails from one year ago to establish what the key aspects of your, well, personal administration are? Well, it's very difficult, right? It's very, very difficult. And of course, stories are told both by you and Obama and by FDR and by Julius Caesar. And these are somewhat accurate and somewhat self-interested. That's all that history is. It's, it's actually ludicrously hard to come to consensus on these things. There are a few methods that for various reasons I think are trustworthy, a few things that I think are indicative or reliable. For the fall of the Roman Empire, consider a few things indicative. I think there are a few thinkers who you can just judge as excellent thinkers who spent a lot of time sifting through Roman letters and looking at the political reality before and after the fall of the Roman Empire and came to their conclusions. Also, there's material evidence. A lot of large cities that were depopulated over the course of the third, fourth, and fifth century 
also indirect evidence that doesn't rely on the honesty of archaeologists. The ice samples from Greenlandic ice are a snapshot of many centuries, like the tree lines you might find if you ch chop down a tree where the thicker lines or the narrow lines show lean years or years with a lot of water. Uh, much in the same way in the Greenlandic ice, there are tiny, tiny air bubbles, some of them trapped for centuries or thousands of years. And these are essentially air samples from the era and we can measure lead pollution because of the way the Atlantic winds work and because of dissipation in the atmosphere, we can pretty clean, clearly map lead in the atmosphere to Roman mining activity. So at least you have under the assumption that Roman mining activity is related to economic production, a good indicator of their economic activity. The interesting question here is, well, if you were a Roman and someone could tell you this information, how would you process it? Today, if you saw drop in lead pollution, your first assumption might be cleaner and greener technology. But a statement of victory, that is something everyone proposes in a self-interested way. It's not that the ancients could do things we could not possibly do, is that the ancients were foolish or extravagant or that this wasn't built by people at all. It was built by uh, a race of cyclops or giants. So in a way we have nothing to, nothing to feel bad about. And uh, that last example, that's how the classical Greeks saw Mycenaean ruins, right? The Mycenaeans being the society from about 1100 to 1200 BC. And they made up these stories essentially that these huge rocks couldn't possibly be moved by people. They must have been built by Cyclops. And because of that, I'm also not very partial to the theories of you know aliens building the pyramids and so on. I think it just means that no, we actually don't understand ancient economic systems. We very well know how to put lots and lots of rocks just using muscle power in the right place, but we have a difficult time grasping an economic and political system that could make this very easy. There are other things we don't understand about the ancient world, but for the most part, I think our civilization has massively uh, better technology than ancient Rome. I'm more skeptical about our social technology rather than material technology. And material and social technology always coexist. The most interesting thing that happened in the last 500 years was the Industrial Revolution. I think the current assumption is that the Industrial Revolution is still ongoing. And I have to ask, well, if the Industrial Revolution is over, what would we see? Much as we see a drop in atmospheric lead after the decline of the Western Mediterranean economies of the Roman Empire, we see drops in Western pollution. We see outsourcing and the usual explanation is that this is because the Chinese have undercut prices and it just makes sense and it's just gains from trade and so on. Another explanation is perhaps the American manager and the American worker have actually over time lost the social technology that enabled them to effectively work as a team in the context of an assembly line and that the fault tolerances are getting worse and worse and that the reason we are outsourcing isn't so much greed but inability. This is a hypothesis that's strikingly hard to defeat. I think we need to seriously consider the possibility that we are a post-industrial society, not in a positive sense, but an industrial society in which the industrial revolution has stopped. So a civilizational collapse in conditions of very advanced technology might very much 
look like something we have right now, where what was once the product of advanced rational systems, or at least self-catalyzing systems of production, has reverted to a more customary system where the thing, things are ran as they were 20 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 50 years ago. And we have the same bureaucratic and economic institutions with only very marginal changes, like the ability to have Zoom calls in a single domain of progress of CPUs, CPUs that are, of course, not made in California, or at least, you know, some, some of them might be, but very few. Now, this is a little bit provocative, right? I think that with all of these difficulties and with the provocation that people in a society tend to not acknowledge its collapse or decline, this by the way is true of say the Roman empire, which is the most popular example in our culture. You only find letters of people complaining that the roads are awfully unsafe this year, but mostly not thinking that some sort of fundamental change is apace. The collapse of the Roman Empire is much less burning cities and much more GDP is shrinking 1% a year, but on the books, GDP is about the same. Right now, the market seems to be about the same or even better than it was a few months ago. Yet common sense tells us production has fallen massively. Okay, so if such a huge change can be papered over with government intervention or with intervention of other private actor players, uh, what about slower moving changes? How would we even know if GDP per capita had in fact been declining 1% a year for the last 20 years? Okay, I think I will possibly, no, actually I, I should try to answer the question. Um, this has been more of an epistemic exercise and, and somewhat, somewhat provocative so far. I think civilizational collapse looks relatively slow over the course of 20, 30 to about 100 years. Uh, assuming that we're not touching really on what human beings are and what they're for, like obviously, you know, from the perspective of Christianity, the dissolution of the Roman Empire was perhaps a great thing. Uh, certainly coincided with the spread of Christianity. But if we like drop this assumption of why are, you know, sort of, if we look at it through the lens of um, functionality rather than normativity, then I think we can define a civilizational collapse. It's basically where most of the institutions of a society that are recognizable or large scale vanish. There's usually a drop in material wealth and there's usually a drop in the material complexity of artifacts and the complexity of social forms. There's further usually a loss of knowledge or a thinning of which proportion of the population has the knowledge. Classic examples would be uh, writing disappearing after the late Bronze Age collapse around 1000 BC because they only had a tiny literate class. And as you have a collapse of society, usually the traditional elite class goes away with the collapse of that society. Meaning that with the elite class only having access to writing, only being the class that had any use for writing and reading, those systems of writing and reading vanished. When writing reappears in the Eastern Mediterranean after the recovery from this collapse a few centuries later, it's based on the Phoenician alphabet. So it's no longer uh, hieroglyphic in nature. It's no longer similar to the linear A and B writing that you might see among the Minoans or the cuiform uh, that you might see with the Assyrians. 
So there's a completely different system in place when the society redevelops. You might lose types of knowledge like that. And you know, today we might lose uh, COBOL programmers uh, where New Jersey was desperately asking for, for one, I think about a month ago, the state of New Jersey, because it's been relying on legacy systems that hadn't ever been rebuilt, uh, or at least hadn't been rebuilt in decades and, and have been patched over. The interesting case here is that a lot of knowledge is obscure. So this is a straightforward consequence of my thesis that you actually, if you're a typical man in the street, or even if you're rather intelligent, but not if you're extremely intelligent, um, it's very difficult to tell apart Nobel Prize winning work from crack pottery. And you usually rely on institutional signposts, right? You rely on the big gold medal, however indirectly. You know, and this is a more salient uh, analogy in this is a more salient analogy in continental Europe than it is here, but the kilogram, which is, you know, sort of an equivalent weight measure to the pound is a unit that's defined not by any universal principle of physics, but is defined with a very particular weight stored in the Institute of Measures in Paris. So every year or so they take this weight out, carefully clean it, and compare it as best as they can to national kilogram standards, which are replicas of this original weight to say, okay, on the scale, this is about the same. This is a kilogram. If somehow you had changed the mass of that kilogram, you would basically screw up a lot of measurements all over the world. People could probably approximate the original weight of the kilogram quite closely, but not enough for really fine scientific applications. Similarly, if the Nobel Prize started to be you know, awarded in relatively skewy ways, it would take a while for anyone to notice. And for everyday use, it wouldn't matter. People would still know who's a physicist, who's an engineer, and who's a psychologist. But the very subtle system of intellectual regulation and status distribution, and the agreed upon stories of economic production, because I think we actually don't understand economic production at all. I think our society has a claim to understand economic production but there's no particular reason to believe this claim. So if someone were to alter a story of economic production, it would actually take a while for anyone to notice. And the long-term consequences might be the loss of particular capabilities. There is the example recently of the US government's uh, failure to produce a classified material. I think it's called Fog Bank is the code name, which is necessary for you know, creation of nuclear weapons. And it took many millions of dollars and I think something like a five to 10 year effort to re-engineer a material that just was known, people knew how to make it in the 70s and 80s. It was such a niche field of knowledge, so far away from common use. Uh, and the key interesting thing about, you know, this sort of what does the civilizational collapse look like? I think it looks like the loss of several of these capacities I think that a society that's undergoing an intellectual dark age doesn't realize it's undergoing an intellectual dark age. All the people who would notice are long gone or are miseducated or are essentially imitating and LARPing the forms of uh, the previous class, right? And uh, third, the archeological evidence for decline, I think is best measured as in things like population decline uh, decline of various kinds of industrial output, uh, travel distance, things like safety, things like the presence or absence of things. So in a way, we're always examining collapse from the outside. 
But when we're examining it from the outside, we're relying on the accounts from the inside and any material evidence they left behind. And if we compare across to something like 12 identifiable dark ages, if I use that term, so periods of civilizational collapse uh, in the Eurasian continent, I'm not gonna be talking about the new world here. So not thinking about the Aztecs, the Mayans or whatever, just thinking about say the late Bronze Age collapse or the end of the Mohenjo-Daro uh, civilization in the Indus Valley or uh, the collapse of Han China during the Yellow Turban Rebellion or the end of the Roman Empire. When we look through those, I find that almost all of the material technology is very much not self-perpetuating, but rests on social technological foundations. The social technological foundations are not understood explicitly by all parts of society. Rather, the knowledge is highly compartmentalized. This means that well-intentioned and successful reform is extremely rare, though it does happen. I think that, for example, Augustus Caesar deserves a lot of credit in saving a Roman Republic that was tearing itself to shreds in completely unsustainable wars and rebooting it into an imperial system that eventually also tore itself into shreds through warfare and through lack of economic and intellectual productivity, but only did so 300 years later, right? So I do think that revivals and reforms happen, but this extreme difficulty of social engineering on the macro scale, plus the accumulation of errors, what's essentially a kind of social or cultural technical debt would be my best guess on the basis of all of these assumptions that I've sketched out and all of these methodological considerations I've sketched out for why civilizations collapse. And I think, you know, there is a belief right now I th that's very deep in Western thinking is that we are already living in scientifically planned societies. I think we're certainly living in socially engineered societies, but I don't think they're scientifically planned in a straightforward way, right? So I don't think our organs of economic management secretly know how the economy works. I don't think they do. Uh, I also don't think most of our systems of political regulation are that clear-minded right now. They've mostly inherited stuff from say two or three generations ago, sometimes one generation ago. I would put the last spurt of institutional growth in, in Western societies in about the 1960s. And, you know, this, um, this kind of collapse therefore is somewhat downstream of the lack of very subtle regulation for solving the succession problem. Uh, the succession problem is, you know, this problem of how do you transition organizations and how do you have it so that, you know, say one Nobel Prize committee chairman that the next Nobel Prize Committee chairman has similar qualities of judgment to the original, to the first Nobel Prize Committee chairman, right? That might be an example of a succession problem. Or in an intuitive case in ancient Egypt, it might be, you know, does the son of the Pharaoh know how to interact with all the powerful people in Egypt so as to prevent civil war, so as to achieve victory abroad, so as to prevent famine through storage of grain and so on, and accurate measurements of the Nile River. Um, a very interesting thing is that, um, well, okay, we could talk about Egypt, but I'll actually see whether other people are interested in that. Uh, one of the state secrets of Egypt was measurements of the level of the Nile River. I found that very interesting because it's a, it's a nice example of state secrets being related to uh, environmental factors, right? So even if we were undergoing 
climate collapse or something like this, which I don't think we are. Uh, we're certainly undertaking some climactic change. It's not clear this would be made apparent to a random member of society. And it's very difficult to keep secrets across generations. Often the problem is the kids don't get the joke. So if you create an organization on a false mimicking premise, the people you hire into it might never get the joke and they will act straightforwardly on the stories that were your propaganda, but for them are the actual history of how the organization was formed, right? So this is why I don't believe in multi-generational conspiracies. And yes, if you're actually methodologically open-minded, you should consider those, right? And you should think about those. Uh, you shouldn't take the consensus of your particular society. You should try to view it through the lens of, well, many different societies. And some of them did think that the world was run by multi-generational secret societies. Now, so I'm proposing there is a failure of succession there stemming from knowledge succession. You might also have power succession where, you know, the son of the Pharaoh might be just as skilled, but the Assyrians coming in are even more skilled. So in that case, there's a, a failure to transmit power in that position. So a failure of the succession problem in niche social engineering parts of society and sometimes more uh, philosophical or scientific areas of society where if the Institute of Imagine there was an institute of pottery and they lost the ability to make good pots. Would they declare we have lost the ability to make good pots? Well, no, right? They wouldn't, they never would do that. That's self-abolishing, right? So how would you even know how profound a scientific crisis your society was in? And the answer tends to be, well, a small number of people who have actually good judgment and who understand the, the generative, the intellectual generation behind the facts, rather than merely minding the, the integrity of the recorded body of facts, theories, and observations, right? So people who can verify and have independent checks, and I think such people are extremely rare. Um, and there has to be a socioeconomic niche for them. So if there exists something like a techne, a skill of managing society and managing institutions and culture, it exists in these very, very narrow corners of society. And, uh, you know, it would be, it is a difficult social engineering challenge to have that be self-perpetuating. There are all sorts of mechanisms that might go into it, but that, that would be the bottom line. So, okay, this was a very broad theoretical discussion. And now I think it's time for the question section. Great, we've got lots of questions that I will roll through. Got a few more rolling in as we're sitting here, but we'll start with uh, one that Sid submitted at the very beginning. If you're speaking to a senior in college about to graduate uh, and approach the chaos of the economy for the next 12 to 18 months, do you have any broader advice for how they might think about that? Be ready to pivot a lot. And uh, don't underestimate, don't underestimate how much large institutions can externalize uh, difficulties. So in other words, if you expect a big institution to break, usually this kind of intuition is false. And you have to look at all the ways the large institution can offload its problem to smaller institutions or organizations or the population at large. And I also think that no matter what happens to the economy, we will experience a drop in living standards. 
I think that's just unavoidable. Uh, how big a drop? Unsure. So a lot of the expenditures that essentially were surplus are no longer available. So I perhaps focus on relatively fundamental approaches to that, uh, stuff that is doing the basics better and doing the basics better in a way that does not rely on a big institution breaking because they usually don't, they usually can pass the buck. In fact, um, you know, I have this, this online document called Great Founder Theory, and I describe the uh, centralized declining empire, right? I have a topology of empires, uh, centralized, decentralized, expanding, declining. In a decentralized, sorry, in a centralized declining empire, uh, the central institutions of society preserve themselves by cannibalizing the outer uh, supporting structures over and over again until that's no longer sustainable. But it's sort of like this kind of slowly shrinking, imploding object, right? This might be a good example of this might be the uh, late Western Roman Empire. Um, so yeah, this advice is vague, but that's because, you know, it didn't specify a, a particular domain of expertise. Uh, and then if we, if we go into that, I might be able to say something more specific to that circumstance. Great. Patrick asks, as the most significant force of historical change is novel technologies and the institutions they make possible, to what extent does this degrade the usefulness of a historical case study method of analysis? Well, the only technologies I've seen to be robust over the 12 uh, collapses of society I've seen in Eurasian history, be it in the Middle East, India, China, Europe, have been small-scale agriculture and small-scale metallurgy. So I do think those are the macro secular trends. Almost everything else you might think of as locked in forever uh, can vanish, including the very art of writing and including things like indoor plumbing. That's certainly very precarious, uh, precarious of technology. I also think that while human potentialities are significantly altered by technology, technology rests on a social stack, right? Ultimately the difference between Europe and China wasn't the invention of the printing press. They both did it. The difference was what was the role of the written word, right, in that society. If you change the economics of the written word to make it much cheaper, in China, the main result is that civil service exams are less expensive to print. In Europe, the difference is, uh, you know, a cranky blogger protected by a German prince can issue theological invectives at the Pope and start to claim that he's an alternate power center. That right there is 90% social technology, 10% physical technology. Do I agree the physical technology cannot be skipped, right? So uh, I think that the technology can be sort of analyzed as is because we can easily run experiments on it, right? You can try to make an atomic bomb I mean, it's very difficult in your basement, presumably, but, you know, almost everyone can make a pipe bomb, which is why there was, you know, a lot of problems with domestic terrorism in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s before the control mechanisms were tightened. Um, today, people just don't know enough chemistry to build pipe bombs. Still, in theory, most experiments underwriting practical everyday science could be done by an individual or a small team. I think it's possible to very rapidly reverse engineer almost any piece of physical technology uh, because you can wreck it very easily. It's much harder to, or at least riskier, to reverse engineer a society because we, we live in it. It carries all the risks of living in a house that you built while not being a very good architect or a very good judge of materials. 
and especially if it's precarious and several stories high. Uh, so I think that the historical comparisons are deeply informative on social technology as such. And you can make generalizations on theories of social technology, right? So basically you build up your theoretical knowledge of social tech from comparing societies the same way you might build up your theories of physics by comparing results of different experiments or engaged in, you, you might engage in thought experiments like Einstein did or a mix of philosophy and mathematics as also you know early physics did. In addition to the experiments, you might develop a body of knowledge. Of course, no one today would run almost the exact same experiments as say Galileo would have, but the, the laws discoverable by say Galileo or Newton or Einstein, those can be applied to novel circumstances. So that's what I would say. I don't expect the same outcomes I expect parts of the institutional landscape to be less affected by technological change, allowing us to figure them out, allowing us to figure out social theory, allowing us ultimately to enter the variable of technology has changed in this way. How does social theory, what social theory, what would social theory predict happens in such an environment? An interesting example of this might be a book by the American historian Carol Quigley titled Weapon Systems and Political Stability where he lays out a general theory for what do technical changes to weapon systems do to which social structures are viable or not. And you can just as easily, you know, in his theories, you can plug in the atomic bomb as you might uh, a bow and, bow and arrow, or as you might dispersed massed drone warfare, right? Now, of course, the theory might be wrong, but there's certainly, there is a matter of fact of, of how societies work. We have a quick question from Henry. Uh, who are excellent thinkers on the fall of the Roman Empire? I mean, that's that's just such a such a difficult question. I feel like the Roman Empire is so charismatic in Western awareness. It's almost a trauma that I think in order to understand where these ideas of the Roman Empire comes from, these ideas you might not even know that you hold, I think I would just recommend reading Gibbon. I think Edward Gibbon, uh, you know, he wrote the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and he wrote this at the late 18th century. And it's very clear he's writing it in order to try to make the British Empire different. You know, whenever you have a historian or social thinker talking about society, you have to ask also, what are they trying to do differently? What are they trying to do? It's, it's not, if they're doing their job, it's not very disinterested, right? It's, it's very much interested. So I think Gibbon is, is, you know, someone you just can't skip. And after Gibbon, I think the thing to do is essentially read uh, some of the more recent papers on Roman cities. So these are unfortunately not books, but they're just very good archaeological papers on the scope of Roman cities. So I'd read those because so much of Roman history is urban history. And that's the one thing where I think Gibbon is quite wrong. Uh, we have another question from... Uh, looks like a Nicholas. Uh, what do you think about Fukuyama's thesis on the end of history? Will future institutions largely resemble those currently? Will we ever see the institutional diversity that occurred prior to the end of history? Uh, example, before the end of the Cold War. Well, I feel like 1991 feels almost as, age, as ancient as 1945 or 1918 at this point. I feel like in the last few months, uh, a few years of history have happened, not yet a century, but at least a few years. I, th I think we are not at the end of history. I do think we have a history deficit. 
So less has happened in the last 30 years than one might have expected. And we should probably be quite grateful for that. A lot of history is things going very badly, such as wars and disasters and so on. Um, I think that for a definition of end of history, the ancient Egyptians achieved end of history, right? In the Fukuyama sense. Thousands of years of Bronze Age society with relatively stagnant cultural forms. That is a fact about our civilization. That is not a fact about the future of humanity. So if the end of history has arrived, I think the end of history might last for a very long time, but only as long as Western hegemony. Cool, that's, that's how to answer that. So I disbelieve the end of history, basically. I, I think we have a particular packet of social technologies that fit in snugly, but I don't think we've discovered the true human nature and re-derived the true political order out of the full scope of human nature. And even Fukuyama himself, uh, he, he moves, he writes some books on biotechnology where he acknowledges that biotechnology uh, throws all his assumptions out. We had a strong interest from the community on uh, the uh, Egyptian civilization. So here's one question from John. Was the Bronze Age collapse uh, preventable if Egypt and other major powers had acted differently for the decades before, uh, before it, or was it practically inevitable? I think we... I think it is, I think it's always avoidable. I think it's always avoidable um, in principle. Now the question is always counterfactuals are difficult. And for Egypt, they weather it better. Uh, they definitely weather it better than the Hittites or the Mycenaeans or the Minoans, right? Uh, they have some continuity of culture, but they stop monumental construction and uh, a lot of their cultural vitality goes away. In other words, they don't build many new institutions. I think what happens in Egypt when it goes through the late Bronze Age collapses, rebellions, famines, all of this stuff, lots of stuff destroyed, but the central institutions of society kind of cannibalize some of the middle of society to sustain themselves. And once the crisis is over, you're left with a relatively stagnant society, right? So I think it was much more dynamic prior to the late Bronze Age collapse. So yeah, they, they're definitely affected by it deeply. They're less affected by it than most. And part of it seems to be at least military preparation for dealing with the sea people invasions, which you know most historians now think are a consequence rather than a cause of the collapse. Because as you see these collapses in uh, Mycenaean world or the Hittite world, you have these giant movements of people, right? Not too dissimilar from the movements of people during the so-called barbarian invasions in the fourth, fifth and sixth century, part refugee, part conqueror, uh, they show up at your doorstep. And, you know, the Egyptians proactively fought them, uh, the Sea People raiders in Lebanon, and then a few years later in a naval battle near uh, the Nile Delta. And I think without those military victories, the central institutions wouldn't have preserved themselves. Had other societies taken those measures, they might have militarily preserved themselves. Economically, however, uh, that would have been probably the best, you know, the best alternative might have been transition from bronze working to iron working that was much faster because bronze working was a fragile technology uh, requiring many points of contact with social technology rather than a few. It seems that iron working just requires an iron working caste and it can be an extremely respected class or it can be a despised class like they exist as a despised class in, in ancient India that exists as a privileged caste in, in Japan. 
but for bronze working, you also need very lar- long distance trade. Uh, the tin, you know, it's a mixture of mostly copper and tin. I think 90% copper, 10% tin. Uh, you can sometimes substitute arsenic, though that's toxic. Uh, that tin was shipped to the Middle East from modern day Afghanistan and modern day Britain, right? These are remarkable distances, right? These are uh, really serious trade expeditions and you're running a whole economy on that where bronze is there, is your, your key tools are made out of it. All your high status objects, ritual objects are made out of it. Um, the weapons are made out of it. So I think their technology stack could have been simplified to be more robust. For a lot of uses, bronze is actually superior to iron, at least if you're working it as iron rather than steel. So in a way, it's just having less technological fragility would have been useful. Another important one is, I think that the knowledge structure of society could have been less fragile and less centralized, but where I think the requirements of political control over the palace, the so-called palace economies made those economies very fragile. Uh, I'm gonna just say a few things about palace economies of the late bronze age. Basically these large palatial complexes where tribute is collected and sometimes the tribute is directly worked on. If you imagine something that's not just the palace, but a factory, and you imagine requirements of, you know, so many hides of sheep, so much wine, so much grain has to be brought in. It's brought into rooms. You visually inspect how much was brought into the rooms. You say, okay, that's fine. We're not going to beat you up this today or whatever. And here's your pay for your daily work. And then it goes from one room to another room and is reworked into a new shape. This new shape, it might be say uh, glass, it might be bronze weaponry, is then traded with ships that have arrived over the Mediterranean Sea in exchange for goods that you don't produce. So your palace ends up having both, you know, glass and bronze cups and pottery and all these other fine products, and you're specializing in a small number of them. And political control and production control are really closely bound together. Uh, I think the the urban economies of these cities. Uh, and city government in particular could have been done, could have been done differently as well. This would have needed the introduction of some new social technologies, I think, though. So, yeah, like creative social reform, creative technological reform, or better centralized preparation by a few of the states rather than just Egypt that happened to be lucky enough to receive warning of the collapses in Mycenae and Hittite, the Hittite area a few years prior. They couldn't have done much about the uh, string of earthquakes or uh, the drought that also coincided in this period. Uh, Matthew asks for your thoughts on money as open software, specifically its debasement in empires over time, the role of reserve currencies, and any consequences of time preference. Okay, uh, that's that's a very open-ended question. I'll do my best to say something there. I think the debasement of currency is at least as interesting as the preservation of currency. Uh, the solidus, which was a gold coin in the late Roman Empire, is imitated and copied by numerous states for about a thousand years after the fall of the Roman Empire. So it's a standard of currency that survives the government that created it. There are also, you know, coins of from the Abbasid Caliphate that were traded for a thousand years after the Abbasid Caliphate disappeared some of them as late as the 19th century. 
So you can certainly have standards that are enacted by centralized governments that don't outlive those governments. And certainly the debasement of currency happens. The key thing is that as long as you have everyone in society relying on a monetary economy, uh, you can find ways to track all financial transactions or effectively tax by watering down uh, the value, the stores of value people have accumulated, right? So the time preference aspect of that is, I think states that want a well-functioning economy and can afford to have it, tended to historically prefer more, you know, pure, pure metal currency, less debased currency, states that underwent crisis, usually wanted to inflate currency. And I also note that uh, the very introduction of currency is I think a state action rather than a state less action. So I think that one of the big drivers for why you want to use coins in the first place is that, you know, the, the taxman shows up and you want to pay it in gold. You don't want to pay it in kind. It's much harder to hide whether you have 10 sheep than to hide whether you have X or Y or Z amount of coins. One of the big causes of peasant rebellions in Europe in the 16th century and the 15th century, no, actually the 16th century, was that they demanded the return of traditional standards. What they call as traditional standards was uh, the serfs, uh, the the lords would the lord the representatives of the feudal lords would go collect uh, coins like value and money from the serfs, but of course the introduction of new world silver and to a lesser extent new world gold reduced the value of silver and gold, meaning that in practice they were paying less taxes, and this was reverted by the feudal lords to even older stuff, uh, which was just demand uh, to be paid in kind. And this was vigorously resisted. So at times, you know, you might want to, you might want it to be the case that I want to pay my taxes in gold or silver or dollars, because that's actually a smaller tax burden than paying it in land, right? So I think the big untold story of currency is the border between stuff that's denominated in currency and stuff that isn't denominated in currency. And I think the effects of debasing currency on long-term thinking are often exaggerated because people underestimate to what a great extent assets flee into just non-monetary, like non-monetary stuff becomes more important. You start focusing on the land that you own or the buildings that you own or the intangible uh, sort of network of favors that you own, right? You stop denominating your economic transactions in money. And most economic transactions note that exist in a company could easily be handled by customary considerations rather than by accounting. The function of accounting is to make a company legible to outsiders, right? Much more so than for internal planning, though I think a lot of people, you know, once you, it's one way to organize it, but it's not the only way to organize internal planning. Great. We have a question by uh, Jeet Siju. Uh, are there examples of people we, do, we can look to or individuals, individuals or groups of people who recognized collapse coming and have rejuvenated a society or exited that society proactively. If there are, what would be common threads among those groups? I think there's a strong case to be made that the monastic communities of early Christianity were very much intentionally exiting city and urban life. As I said, Roman civilization was deeply urban uh, and rested on this kind of Mediterranean market that was maintained by a security architecture based on the legionary system 
and uh, ultimately at its apex, the military dictatorship of the emperor. Um, I think that this exit resulted in them trying to make communities that were economically as self-sufficient as possible. The state of San Marino in modern day Italy claims descent from originally a monastic community where the founder, I think, uh, Santos Marinos or St. Marius, I think it's in English, I have to check. He said uh, on his deathbed, I leave you free from the dominion of two men. And what this is usually interpreted to mean is it's to mean the Pope and the emperor, right? Right, the idea is that this monastery was out of oversight of either of them. Um, and you know, this is then something that the, the, the few people of San Marino today are still proud of. Um, so those monastic communities fit the bill. I think there's an argument to be made that colonization waves are often the result of this. When we hear the term New England, we think about North America, right? We think about places like uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts and other earlier settlements. But you know, there's a New England that used to exist in the Black Sea. After the Anglo-Saxons were defeated by the Normans, a lot of them fled and settled in service to the Eastern Roman Empire. Empire. So the Byzantine Emperor would take on Anglo-Saxon bodyguards. And then a lot of them would settle in the northern region of the Black Sea. I'm just going to link this because this is such an interesting, obscure piece of history. Um, they eventually, of course, are assimilated and lost. So here we go. Uh, 11th century, I'm going to drop this in the, in the channel. Uh, let's go and send it to everyone. So medieval New England, there you have it. There are lots of cases there of military defeats that cause an elite with enough of a general population to just flee a region. And, you know, this externally driven defeat, this resettlement sometimes results in a revival of a society. I talked earlier about monastics exiting the urban society of Rome. Another example might be uh, the Emperor Constantine, who moves the Roman capital to New Rome. New Rome, of course, isn't known as New Rome. It's known as Constantinople. Refounds a completely new city with a completely different set of uh, noble families, rebuilds a forum, uh, rebuilds a new economic base and a better political position. That comes out of an awareness that the old regional center is dysfunctional and an awareness that the old way of doing things doesn't work. So there's a long history of relatively far-sighted rulers choosing to build a new city in order to escape people, right? In order to foster a completely different kind of elite, right? St. Petersburg in Russia today exists because Peter the Great wanted Russia to be a more European society rather than an Asiatic society. And he hired Italian architects and Dutch shipmakers and German bureaucrats and asked them to settle in a city built on a drain swamp, leaving the old boyars and the old Russian elites in Moscow where they became increasingly irrelevant. So there's an exit of the monastics there's the exit of refugees fleeing, who sometimes conquer or create a new territory. Uh, arguably, you know, uh, the failure of the failure of Reformation in America partially makes the Pilgrims this type of almost refugee civilization or subculture, at least. Uh, you then have centralized efforts to control it, perhaps comparable to Peter the Great or Constantine or or the ancient Egyptian Pharaoh. 
uh, ancient Egyptian pharaohs such as Ramses III and so on. I think that farsightedness also exists among philosophers and academics at times, but no, academic is the wrong word. Forget I said academic. Um, yes, basically philosophers sometimes create philosophy cults that try to escape their society. Socrates pretty much. Uh, Pythagoras is another example. Confucius is an example. Uh, the Taoists are an example. And the general perception during the hundred schools of uh, thought period uh, the contention of the hundred schools, if you go read Chinese history, is that, you know, the late Zhao dynasty is in terminal decline. It's broken up into many states. They're fighting wars. The only thing we can do is like radically rethink society. And then a number of these groups pop up, each with their own vision of what the world will be like. You have the Mohists, who are sort of, you know, uh, monotheistic, but in a way atheistic, right? Uh, they, they espouse these utilitarian views that we should stop spending so much on uh, funerary rites, on funerals, because the dead don't really care, uh, you know, and uh, they're pacifists, but they're practical pacifists because they study siege engines. Their logic being, you know, if siege engines are good enough, then, you know, wars will be over quickly and eventually there'll be a winner. Right, so that's a very technology-driven strategy. I'm surprised more people don't read or know about the Mohists in modern Silicon Valley. Then there were the Confucians who believed that the cultivation of personal virtue was very important, and what had to be was what had to happen was a regrounding of the psychology of rulers. And once rulers had this state of mind and state of peace, and scholars who had assisted them would do would also have it. It would trickle down in cultural change. Um, an interesting point, by the way, is that almost all societies are ultimately converted bottom down when it comes to religious change. You know, uh, it's, it's, you usually need participation or at least acquiescence from like the most powerful members of a society to reform it. Uh, so yeah, I think those, those would be the best examples. So monastics, refugees, uh, centralized reform, and then this sort of intellectual philosophical cult where the idea is that it provides like a total explanation of society and the cosmos and regrounds the perceptions of people in something that's not tied to legacy institutions, right? So this can be also matched with religious reform, right? I think, you know, I, I, I disagree with Gibbon. I don't think Christianity is the cause of Roman decline, for example. I think it's an adaptation to Roman decline. I think Christian cities were probably much more livable than late pagan cities were, like late, late Roman pagan cities, because probably the uh, social life of the city was better regulated. But it's an open question whether they were better regulated than, say, the urban life of Athens and so on, right? I think it's important to remember that the Eleusian mysteries were, in a way, the burning man of their era, where almost all the Athenians attended them. What's the psychological effect of something like that? It's, it's pretty significant, and I bet it changes behavior through the course of a year. Uh, I don't have really time to go into the details of that, but uh, I think the, the philosophical spiritual approach is surprisingly powerful because different states of mind lend themselves to different human behaviors, and these different human behaviors have different scaling properties. Patrick asks, your work often mentions the problem of secession. Adverse selection is a major problem in any mechanism of succession. The classic solution to adverse selection is sortition, which has the side effect of almost guaranteeing mediocrity. 
what would you think of a combination of sortition and standardized testing where sortition is applied to the pool who scored in the 99th percentile, for example? I think Goodhart's law kills most systems of standardized testing. Goodhart's law proposes that whenever a social measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a very good measure. And I think uh, the best way to look at this is the Chinese dynastic cycle, where the dynasties last about two to three hundred years. There's some exceptions like the Zhao, who last five or six hundred years, depending on how you count it where uh, initially the new civil service exam is very good at selecting excellent people. And then 100 or 150 years later, the civil service exam hasn't really changed, but all the people taking the civil service exam have changed. They've pre-gamed it, right? They've learned very well how to pass the test and they study to the test and their entire culture has shifted so as to study to the test. I note that for example, 99th percentile, the assumption was something like IQ. I think the Flynn effect is usually interpreted as a genuine rise in human intelligence. The Flynn effect is the observed rise in IQ over the course of the 20th century in societies where you regularly measure young people's intelligence. Uh, and it's attributed to better nutrition. I have a more cynical explanation. Perhaps it's a graph of how over the course of the 20th century, the IQ test started off as a decent measure of intelligence, but became a worse and worse measure of intelligence because the culture as a whole shifted to an improved uh, ability to take tests and do abstract disembodied reasoning rather than embodied practical situational reasoning. So perhaps the psychological malaise of, we know how to discuss everything, but we have a, an immense difficulty in doing and we seem to need cocaine and Adderall and coffee and alcohol to do anything at all. Well, perhaps that's coming out of the same pot that's causing us to be very good at uh, IQ tests. So I think that the standardized testing part is I'm, I'm relatively skeptical of. I think it can be a marvelous tool, but I think you basically have to just throw out all your assumptions of standardized testing about every 80 or 100 years, no matter how well designed it is, um, because it's always measuring correlates, not the thing itself. You know, it's a fact of the human being that if you try to carry out a psychological experiment and the participants know it's a psychological experiment, the results will be very different from had they not known it's a psychological experiment. So if you put people into the most advanced combat simulation you can imagine versus actual combat, they're aware it's a simulation, okay? They will behave differently. And the same goes for intellectual productivity under different circumstances and character and so on. I think Sertition has some very interesting uh, features so I think that, you know, an element of, of sortition plus testing would have been a great thing to implement in, say, 1970 at a lower stage of, like, cultural or bureaucratic, um, you know, decay. Uh, but I think that the standard level of, like, um, I think the overall intellectual focus of people today is too narrow to have sortition function well. I think sortition works very well when a space where people have varied interests, right? Where people have varied competencies rather than very narrow competencies. And right now we're very much built into narrow competencies. I hope that answers the question. My, my own, one of my favorite uh, mechanisms is by the way, uh, succession by adoption, right? I wrote an article on uh, how the Roman emperors handled the succession problem, which talks about the five good emperors 
uh, where you handpick your own successor. Bonnie asks, uh, do you believe that the United States is in a process of civilizational collapse right now? And what can be done to help people stop that collapse? You know, I think, I think collapse is in the eye of the beholder. I certainly find it very likely that the US has some equivalent of 1% decline per year and the compounding gains can be absolutely brutal. But I think, uh, you know, whatever graph you choose to pick, it's always like a very squiggly line. So if we, you know, if there is a, a reform of some basics, some basics would include uh, rebooting of academia, city government refactoring, uh, restructuring of key federal bureaucracies, uh, integration of social media in a non-toxic way. Um, basically, this kind of more advanced approach to education that focuses on the sort of most outlier groups you can find. And we realize that bigger is not always better when it comes to knowledge, right? So if we, we handle all of those things, I think the US could easily have another period of explosive growth uh, either economically or socially or cultural creativity in the 21st century. So I usually think that, you know, it's an open question whether the biggest economy in the world in 2060 will be China or will it be the United States again? It's an open question. I however think in 2030 or 2040, uh, the biggest economy in the world will be China. So I think the US is enduring some absolute decline and it also is enduring relative decline. And the way to resolve uh, either of those is to undertake some of some fixes in those areas. I'm not very attached to what the fixes are. Right? If you look at my public body of work, I'm like looking at it through the lens of functionality. I don't really have strong preconceptions of what will what will fix things. I'm just saying that these things, these areas, kind of have to be fixed. Um, yeah. Uh, Henry has a flip side of that question. Uh, what are the key pillars of a society like the American society, what are the primary things that keep it from collapsing? Well, there's corrective systems and there's pillars. Um, I think, you know, since uh, the Union's victory over the Confederacy and the Civil War, the federal government, in fact, has become immensely symbolically important to Americans. So while there is a deep tradition of limited government, I think the very pageantry, the pageantry of the White House and the importance of the Capitol right, or something like Congress or the Supreme Court, it's immensely, uh, immensely important. And I think World War II is clearly an example of something that's just won by the federal government and perhaps not existential for the US, was certainly existential for Europe. Um, another important thing is that I think the US is very good at integrating refugees from failed societies. And by refugees, I mean almost intellectual refugees. Again, World War II is a good example or the collapse of the Soviet Union and the massive amount of technical talent that flew from the former Soviet space to the United States, often right here to San Francisco in California. Um, and before that, you know, during the 19th century when there was the failed uh, revolution of 1848 in Central Europe, uh, a lot of those activists and cultural workers and creatives left the German space and settled in North America. So I think the US is extremely good at integrating high achievers into its society, like these exceptional individuals. So I think that's another pillar actually. It's, I have to emphasize it's different from like, it's different from say Ellis Island, though it's related, right? Ellis Island is sort of mass, mass immigration of basically uh, workers that are very useful to run an industrial economy. 
Um, it's not that dissimilar from, say, uh, immigration from Italy into France in the 19th century. Today, I think in modern France, something like 20 to 30 percent of people are descended from Italian immigrants into France, right, who is also completely assimilated. So I think it's actually on the exceptional end. It's on the ability of Einstein to be remembered more as an American rather than a German, right? Uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a very strong advantage. Um, I think another strong advantage is, well, we were talking about pillars, not advantages. So I think that actually is a pillar. I think though the US is better at utilizing uh, exceptional talent than, than fostering it. it. It can foster some certainly, but it's sort of like does okay. It's not clear it does better per capita than say Sweden, though certainly it utilizes all of the talent it has much better than Sweden does or much better than Britain does. So a lot of the pillars of American society are very similar to the genera generic pillars of Western society and somewhat similar, but more variety from pillars of all modern Western society, sorry, all modern societies. So not only Western, but things like Japan, right? Um, I think the industrial process is very important. Like from about 1900 to 1950, the US was best known for Fordism, right? This ability to build these massive, wonderful manufacturing facilities that integrated all aspects of producing a product into a single optimized system. Everyone was impressed with that. Everyone wanted that. Everyone tried to copy it, right? A lot of Soviet espionage was focused less on exceptionally uh, charismatic things such as the bomb, right? The nuclear weapons. But sometimes the spying just amounted to uh, the labor plan in GM or the factory layout in a GM plant, right? Uh, I think that capacity still exists there. Uh, I think it's a little bit in trouble, so possibly there, there needs to be something done to revive it. I think another advantage, another great advantage is, uh, I think Americans, perhaps related to the assimilatory power, are both very good at being missionaries and very good at being salesmen. I think this is connected. And I think the pedagogical role of the salesman is often underestimated because the salesman is often teaching someone in a very short amount of time how to interact with an object that they've never seen. So a lot of American cultural change and adaptivity is actually introduced through marketing, ironically. Now, marketing, of course, has now received a negative connotation, but if you consider the idyllic life in 1950s America, rather than stemming from deep traditional values, it actually stems from a Sears catalog and the images of the Sears catalog. The fact that it worked so well, at least according to many measures, is a testament to the Sears catalog. So that's another one. And I think relatively high religiosity means that the default social fabric that people are working with is relatively high. Um, the lack of a unified religion means that the official ideology and religion of American society is rather amorphous, which at its best uh, lends itself to a deep pragmatism and at its worst lends itself to an anti-systematizing um, you know, anti nature right, something that's not too predisposed for rigorous questioning or, or syn synthesis, right? Like it, at worst, it leads to inconsistency and sloppiness, right? At best, it leads to pragmatism because the civic, the civic ideology of society has to be a compromise of the current composition. I think America straightforwardly represents a big civilizational advance over Europe in the following way. Uh, it solved the wars of religion problem 
without needing to be politically fragmented, right? In Europe in the 16th and 17th century, all the Catholics and all the different types of Protestants are killing each other very vigorously. And uh, the 13 colonies are not killing each other very vigorously. And Europe solves this by a Westphalian system where the different countries are actually completely independent, but this still leaves war of states, even though it eliminates wars of religion. North America is geopolitically unified despite some religious diversity. So that, that, that sort of ability for the coexistence of different religions is like fascinating and very important. Certainly not the only society to have achieved something like that. Uh, you had religiously diverse societies, like, you know, again, we talked about the Romans so many times uh, and the Romans mostly achieved this by pretending that, you know, all the local gods are just different names for Roman gods. And I think, you know, Perhaps that's the way to interpret the idea that the rest of the world is like America, just is trying to do things differently. It's a little bit delusional on, on, the, on the side of the Romans to think all the local gods are just aspects of Roman gods. And it's a little bit arrogant, but it works super well. And I think it's a little bit delusional and a little bit arrogant to say everyone around the world aspires to you know, live the American way, but it's very effective to believe that. And it's also partially true. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, we are at time for this evening. Sam, are there any last words that you'd like to say on this topic uh, before we move into some final housekeeping notes? Well, uh, great questions. Uh, it's very difficult to answer such broad questions. I focused a lot on how hard it is to know things because I wanted to preface and bound what I was willing to say, what I feel confident in saying. Uh, I've been studying this, this question of how to, how and why do civilizations collapse and how do they revive themselves for 10 years. I suspect I'll study it for another 40 years through whatever institutional framework makes sense, uh, through whatever organizations. I think that it's, it, is less, it is less useful to prepare for a collapse personally or as a society than it is to actively and vigorously pursue the things that make a society dynamic and adaptive. Because if you vigorously pursue the things that make a society adaptive and dynamic, then not only will you survive, you'll thrive. And thriving is a much better way of surviving. And I understand that pessimism is very easy uh, to center on. The collapse side of it feels almost like a release. But note that the end of a particular mood or way of being or culture, this kind of collapse or apocalypse of the social system does not need to be tied to the collapse or end of a physical system. A society might change and give way to something better or something different without that many people dying and without that much material stuff going away. I feel a lot of the um, fascination with collapse comes out of a deep and genuine and often well, uh, well justified need and desire for change. So whenever I see a society that does entertain apocalyptic fantasies about itself, it's not actually usually on the edge of collapse. It's often on the edge of a radical social change. And since human beings, we don't live directly in nature, we live in a social world. There's a social layer between us and nature. We're not like, you know, a sea turtle that hatches and without any instruction from parents or a community, we sail out into the ocean, you know, we swim out into the ocean. Um, 
I think we, we, we rely on this in world. So intuitively that feels the change of the social world feels like the end of the world, but it isn't. It's just the end of the social world as we knew it. So I think I, what I would encourage is, well, if we are all interested in collapse, let's investigate what change of the social world we're seeking. Let's, let's try to build that next iteration of it, the whole stack, straight up from small communities to economic production to political governance. Let's think about it and let's use the best of American pragmatism to figure out what the next 50 years of America looks like. Thank you.